0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. When it comes to ending a love relationship, the pain is both emotional and physical, and can linger for years.
1: With romantic rejection, one of the key stories we tell ourselves is we are unlovable. And that's a really debilitating, you know, tragic emotion that I think many, many people actually continue to carry on with them after romantic heartbreak. And it's probably partly why some people really don't recover from heartbreak.
0: So can a broken heart be cured? Is it possible to regulate how much to love?
2: My thought was, if I can make people feel less in love with their ex-partner, they're going to feel better. And I showed that they could be less in love with their ex-partner, but it made them feel worse. So I had them distract themselves by thinking about things that had nothing to do with their beloved, such as uh, what's your favorite food or what would you do if you won the lottery.
0: The science of love and heartbreak and the embrace of singledom. That's coming up on Life Examined. Before we jump in, I'd like to say a big hello and welcome to all of you who've joined our Life Examined Facebook group. It's great to have so many of you on this journey with us. One of our goals this year is to build a more connected and active community of listeners. Every week we post articles, ask questions, and share our favorite quotes and more. And I want to give a shout out to John Skip and Lisa Covington for posting your thoughts and being active So if you're an engaged listener, find us on our group page. We have a link to it at KCRW.com slash Life Examined, and we look forward to hearing from you. So now to today's show. Much has been written about the wonders of love, but when love is lost and the heart is broken, the breakup can be debilitating. Romantic rejection is a literal punch to the gut. A surge of anxiety engulfs the body, and our very sense of self is called into question. Heartbreak has significant physiological and emotional side effects. Stress hormones impact eating, sleeping, and even breathing. They can affect the production of insulin, cause inflammation, and compromise the immune system. Studies show that divorced people are significantly more at risk for chronic disease or even early death. So what makes our bodies react so intensely to breakup and lost love? How do we heal, and how long should this take? In her latest book called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, science writer and author Florence Williams explores what happens to the body and mind when our hearts are broken. Getting insight from scientists and psychologists, she poignantly shares her personal experience after her 25-year marriage ended in divorce. Florence Williams, welcome to Life Examined.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me on.
0: A lot of your book focuses on the physical fallout from your divorce, but maybe we can back up a little bit more, and you can talk about what I can imagine was a really tumultuous and difficult period in your life. Um, What was happening?
1: Yes. uh, Just to give some context to this, I uh, had been married for 25 years, actually met the man who would be my husband when I was 18 years old on my first day of college. So, we were really together my entire adult life. And then, let's see, we dated for about seven years, got married. So I'm on the brink of 50 when things start to sort of fall apart in the marriage. And he basically tells me that he has feelings for someone else and he doesn't want to be married anymore.
0: Wow. And how did that feel for you when you heard that?
1: It felt shocking and stunning, Um, it felt horrible. I mean, it felt horrible emotionally, um, you know, in every way. But I think what really surprised me was how it felt sort of physically Mm. in my body and how my body was registering the emotional pain, you know, to the point where, I mean, I immediately felt sort of like my stomach clench and my chest clench and, you know, soon that sort of gave way to this feeling of just um, kind of buzzing anxiety, a feeling like I couldn't sleep very well. Like I wasn't really able to digest my food. Um, I lost 20 pounds really quickly. Um, I, I recognized it as a feeling of sort of fear and anxiety that was lasting a long time.
0: And I can imagine, I mean, the, the magnitude of this loss would have been so great because as you said a minute ago, it's as if you became adults together it's as if you grew up together this this was your your world your life um as as a person making her way through the world
1: yeah exactly and you know one thing i learned through my research is that when people live together that closely um their bodies really sort of sync up like their respiration rates sync up, their brain waves sync up, even subconsciously, you become very connected to this person and you associate being near them with a the feeling of safety and security. And then, of course, you know, there's this loss of your future, right, which yeah. you're also as expecting kind of to be there forever. And it's suddenly kind of the rug is pulled out.
0: So this sends you on a fairly amazing journey to understand what's happening when there is heartbreak. So where, where did this take you next? I, I wanna hear about your research.
1: Sure, well, you know, the science journalist in me uh, immediately wanted to find out why I was feeling this way, why I even seemed to be getting sick and how my immune system you know, was involved and then of course, how to get better. So one of the first people I reached out to was um, biological anthropologist, Helen Fisher. She's spent uh, many years studying what happens to our brains when we fall in love. And she's actually one of the few people who's now kind of looking at what's happened on the other side of love, what happens to our brains and our bodies when we fall out of it. So that was one of my first stops. You know, and from there, I went on to talk to immunogeneticists, um, neuroscientists, psychologists, um, epidemiologists, (laughs) sort of ran ran the gamut there.
0: Yeah, well, let's start at the beginning. What did you learn from Helen Fisher?
1: What I learned from Helen Fisher is that um, there are sort of two interesting parts of the brain that seem to get really activated in heartbreak. Uh, and one is the part of the brain associated just with pain so that we tend to uh, actually register the pain in very similar structures of the brain that we met re- register physical pain. So she told me in some ways it's like a toothache. Uh, And so all those metaphors, you know, that we see in poetry and philosophy of heartbreak being hurtful, um, on on some level, our brain is really processing it exactly that way. Only it's even worse than a toothache because it lasts a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And it's implicated with all these other feelings of things like rejection um, and um, ostracism and grief. Um, so it's you know complicated. And then the other part of the brain is a part that's associated actually with craving and addiction. Um, so we feel the loss of this person um, very intently. We, um, it, it's like the serotonin is suddenly depleted from our brain. We are still seeking that rush. You know, we're, we're very, on, on some level, you know, aware that there's been um, a loss and we want it back.
0: I'm interested thinking about all of this in terms of the, the difference between heartbreak and grief, like the death of someone. Because in some ways, there seems to be parallels, you know, losing somebody. In this case, in a relationship, it's very confusing because the person remains alive. And I think that's why these questions of shame and loss and uh, come into play. But I, but I wonder if you thought about that all. I mean, is heartbreak essentially... Uh, a death and does our body process Mm -hmm. it similarly?
2: Yes,
1: great questions. Um, I did think about that a lot. I mean, I had friends um, who have lost spouses to death and and illness and um, I think in, in both situations you can have what's called sort of complicated grief uh, but I think what happens in heartbreak is that well the com- the definition of complicated grief one of them is that it just lasts a really long time and yeah. feels sort of unresolved, and I think with heartbreak there's this kind of built-in um, sense of um, not having closure because you're right the person is still there it's like a death but without the body yeah yes <laughs> so um, there's the yearning there's the craving there's the sadness the grief. Um, And then you're right. There's also sometimes a sense of shame and then what I learned about the science of rejection um, You know if we're the one who's been left um, And of course if you're the one who's doing the leaving then there's a a, sometimes a lot of guilt um, that can factor in as well
0: Uh, Interesting. Can you can you say more about the, the shame or any of that? I mean, that's those are heavy emotions to sit with
1: Yeah, I mean rejection is so interesting and it's something that is being studied more recently in the field of psychology Um, We know that people who feel rejected um, get very angry. (laughs) There's what uh, Helen Fisher calls abandonment rage. Um, You know, as human animals, we are really built to take our social relationships very, very seriously. We're sort of hyper attuned to being criticized or um, to being, you know, Um, kicked out of a group of friends, you know, this classic sort of middle school playground phenomenon. We're very, very sensitive to that because part of our survival depends on our being able to successfully navigate these relationships and successfully navigate living in groups. Mm. And so when it doesn't go well, Um, we can become vengeful, we can become angry. Men and women seem to have, uh, on average, different responses where men actually sometimes become very violent, and they can become violent toward the women uh, who've rejected them.
0: That's really interesting. And uh, anger to me, you know, we've talked about it on this program before, but it's an emotion that can be so all-encompassing. It can be, I feel like, the easiest at times to access. You know, I think it's, it's easier to, to get to anger than it is perhaps like a profound sadness or or more complicated feelings of empathy or abandonment. Would you agree? I mean, it's it's like, it seems to be like where we like to go when things get really hard or in a case of abandonment.
1: Well, I, I actually think we're not very good at anger either. Mm. I mean, I think you're right. We don't really like deep, deep sadness and we're very good at numbing from that. Yeah. But I also think we're not typically in our culture very good at anger. Um, we tend to sort of overdo it, right, or we tend to suppress it. Uh, One thing I learned through this process is that feeling a little anger, which is something that I was uncomfortable feeling, um, can actually be really productive. You know, it can help sort of initiate needed change. It can help bring in kind of acceptance. Um, One thing I found out is that if you can get to a point where you can sort of use more negative appraisal terms you know uh, of the person who did the leaving you know oh maybe he wasn't so great like actually i always hated this about him and i always hated that about him and that drove me crazy if you can sort of get to that point it's actually very healthy
0: Mm. i guess though my question is what how do you use anger in productive ways what can we do with that emotion
1: well i think it can really um spur us um you know to get up off the floor Um, You know, it can motivate us. It's a very motivating emotion. It's very full of energy. It's full of sort of adrenaline. It's an action-oriented emotion, Um, whereas depression, you know, can really shut us down. Um, Anger can sort of pick us back up. Um, You know, we can can sort of fight for what we deserve, what we want. It can help us in divorce negotiations, help us stick up for ourselves, um, you know, help us, um, you know, put on that sort of mama bear, you know, I'm going to take care of my kids and do what's right for them. So, in all those ways, it can be helpful.
0: Yeah. So, Helen Fisher was obviously a a big component of your research, but take us to another person that you referenced earlier that that kind of continued this this scientific journey for you.
1: Sure. I mean, there were two people I met really early on who were incredibly helpful. Um, One was the psychologist Paula Williams at the University of Utah. And she said to me, yes, you know, we know that divorced people um, do suffer a tremendous amount of anxiety, um, they, their immune systems are impaired, you know, they suffer early death actually, 26% increased risk of early death, increased risk of chronic disease. That was all grim. But she said to me, and this was wildly hopeful, she said, we think that there are some people who are able to sail through this and similar, you know, terrible life events more easily people who are more resilient. And that's people with the personality trait of openness. So people who are open to curiosity and especially what her lab is discovering. um, People who are actually open to beauty and to experiencing awe. And when I heard that I got very excited because I am someone who loves being in nature. I had written a book about the health effects of nature. I knew I was someone who could find, you know, some comfort and joy in beauty. And then when she told me we could actually learn to sort of move the needle on this personality trait, we could actually learn to become more open. I thought, okay, that's going to be my project for the next year or two while I'm working on this book.
0: This is this is great stuff. And my brain's now going in a few directions, because the, fir- <laughs> the, the first thing you said, though, really kind of frightened me, which was the how I, our immune systems be, can become compromised, or there's there's a heightened risk of death when you come out of a divorce or something. I mean, can you first just start there? Then I want to get to the awe. But yes. it, it sounds like there is a major impact on on our health when you go through major heartbreak.
1: Well, there really is. And so this brings me to the second very influential person I met early on, um, Dr. Stephen Cole at UCLA, who has really spent his life studying the health effects of being lonely. Mm -hmm. So he looks at people's um, genetic factors. He looks at their transcription factors. He looks at their white blood cells. He was really curious to know why do people who feel lonely die earlier? Why do they get sicker? And um, we've known for a long time that people who identify as lonely um, do get sicker and they die younger. So uh, it's something that is increasingly, I think, of interest, right, Um, as loneliness kind of reaches epidemic proportions uh, in the United States and and many, many, many other countries as well. Um, And now, you know, with the added sort of social isolation, Uh, of the pandemic. It's something that I think is, you know, just extends way beyond heartbreak and Mm. and made the book seem suddenly very timely and uh, relevant.
0: And I I guess this is where heartbreak is is a reminder, at least what I'm picking up from you, that there are so many different emotional strands in it, right? There can be loneliness, there can be depression, there can be anxiety. It's a big basket of complicated stuff.
1: It is. And interestingly, it looks like some of those different baskets um, actually lead to kind of different actual changes in our white blood cells and in our transcription factors. So for example, if you tend to be depressed, that's going to lead to sort of different gene expression um, than if you tend to be anxious. And uh, in my case, You know from this heartbreak i was anxious but the anxiety is actually quite common to people who feel lonely even on sort of a subconscious level because again we are you know these hyper social animals we humans and when we're alone our nervous systems go onto high alert they know that their safety in numbers if we actually feel alone in the world, and by the way, loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's not always associated right, with living alone. You can be in a marriage and still feel like no one has your back. Um, or you can live alone and feel like you have really close friends who are taking care of you. But if you feel lonely, your nervous system goes on to high alert. It actually pumps out more inflammation uh, in your, um, immune system particularly because it's gearing up to sort of, um, fight predators when you're by yourself.
0: That's so fascinating because I would have probably immediately associated loneliness more with depression than anxiety, which is not to say that one can't be depressed and lonely. I'm sure that exists, but, but actually the way you describe it. Yeah. A- anxiety. I mean, you're, you're worried, as a solo creature, I, you don't have the defense around you or the family or whatever it is. So I, it does make a lot of That's sense. Right.
1: That's right. And people who are lonely, um, researchers have shown, research has shown that people who are lonely um, tend to be more distrustful of others. Um, it's kind of a, a vicious cycle in a way. I mean, they, they are harder in some ways to get along with because they're more defensive. Uh, and this is because they don't feel so safe.
0: So we all need a couple up immediately. Is that what would?
1: <laughs> not necessarily. Um, not necessarily. I want to put in a plug for there are lots of ways <laughs> to feel safe and to feel loved. Um, doesn't have to be romantic. But you know, there also is a lot of research showing that people who are happily partnered, um or who are very deeply sort of um you know integrated uh in kind of a, a society um, do live longer and have better immune systems
0: mm, yeah that, that's a good point well the the piece that you know i i took us away from a moment there i, I want to get back to is how how one can be resilient through heartbreak. And um, one of my favorite programs is we had Dacher Keltner on from UC Berkeley, who you probably have come across, does a lot of research in psychology on awe and what these experiences yeah. do to us. But but I wanna turn it back over to you. How how can being in the midst of beauty and awe help someone in in these very difficult situations?
1: So awe is so interesting as a positive emotion. It's only kind of recently been studied, and Dacher Keltner is one of the you know key people working on this. But we know from studies that people who experience awe um, tend to, at least momentarily, have a sort of reduction in their own ego. They tend to feel smaller, you know. And I think we can imagine this, right? If you're looking up at the night sky or you're seeing the sunset or a beautiful sort of vast, you know, Grand Canyon kind of vista, um, you actually feel smaller. And in experiments, people actually draw themselves as being smaller in the landscape. For example, when they're looking at a vista of Yosemite, as opposed to like a vista of um, an intersection or a shopping mall. And that feeling of sort of ego loss, um, in turn actually leads us to feel more like we're part of a community. It's not that we necessarily feel like we're lesser than, but we feel like other people are also important and that we're part of this sort of fabric of the cosmos. Uh, It's it's, it's kind of subtle to talk about, but um, it's actually a very healthy and comforting feeling. Uh, It can actually get us out of this sort of negative cycling of our own thoughts and, you know, oh, woe is me, woe is me. And more like, we're in this together. I feel like I'm part of something. You know, the cycles of life continue uh, and it's it's actually really healthy.
0: You know, it's interesting. I I had an experience like that once. It was kind of out of a, of a meditation, but it was during a period of of turbulence and loss. And you know, it, it was this feeling of even if I don't have my partner, that person's gone. I'm still connected to a community, to people, to the world, to things that are much greater. And, and with that can come, I think, very powerful feelings of love and connection that you might have only looked for in one place before or, or to one person before, but that are actually existing all around you. And I know that sounds, you know, this stuff sounds hard to put words to, but I, I sense that's kind of what you're talking about.
1: That's exactly what I'm talking about. I think you're really hitting it on the head. And you can see how those kinds of feelings would lead to resilience. You know, it's like, yes, I've I've suffered something terrible. um, But, you know, we all are humans. We all suffer terrible things. And if we can actually um, kind of, I guess, process this pain and speak about it and find comfort in each other and find comfort in, you know, just the cycles of life and the universe, um, it puts things into perspective. Right. Mm. It puts our problems into perspective, makes us feel connected, uh, I think, to more easily accessing feelings of love. Absolutely.
0: Another thing we hear about are using different drugs now also to get over heartbreak or to work on relationships. We hear of MDMA therapies, uh, things like that, to try and uh, give the system a bit of a boost or a different way of approaching love. Is that something you looked at as well?
1: Well, it is. And in fact, since you mentioned Dacher Keltner, uh, I've known Dacher for a long time. And I um, told him I was going through a divorce. It was hard. And uh, we started talking about psychedelics and about awe. And and I said, should I try this? Should I try psilocybin, for example, magic mushrooms? And, um, you know, he asked me some questions. And uh, of course, these are these drugs are not for everybody by a long shot. Um, they there are lots of sort of contraindications um but he said he said yeah you know if you're going for awe i would try it Mm. and he said you know what the psychedelics can provide is really this you know awe experience kind of writ large you know technicolor awe big awe which we think may be one of the pathways for why these psychedelic experiences um can really help people with trauma and it again it connects to that idea of um feeling cosmically connected you know, feeling love in the universe and also just putting our own problems into perspective.
0: Mm, Yeah. So for you, did it end up being a positive experience?
1: So for me, I, I ended up, um, interviewing a couple of different clinicians, um, you know, I wanted to find someone I really trusted. I had never done this before and I was a little nervous about it. I don't really like losing control of Uh my um, conscious thinking brain. (laughs) Um, and I found someone, um, worked with her in a, in a setting where I felt really safe. And I have to say for me, it actually ended up being a really helpful and powerful experience.
0: Nice. Any, any experiences you'd want to share with us?
1: Sure. <laughs> yeah, one of the one of these very strong kind of visions I had under the influence of I was taking both um, MDMA, um, sometimes known as ecstasy or molly, um, and followed by the psilocybin. And, and that kind of the idea there is that it kind of um, the MDMA sort of opens you up to to um, feeling that the um, psychedelic experience isn't scary. Mm. And so that worked for me. But one of the visions that I had was that I was a tree. And that my ex was this sort of a strangler fig that was wrapping around my trunk. Oh, wow. Because I did feel like he's part of who I am. You know, he's part of my core. We've grown up together, lived with him for 30 years. But I also had this sense that I was still too connected to him and that I wasn't going to be able to really grow and flourish until I could kind of unwind him a bit, you know, from my trunk. And so I had this really clear vision of unwrapping this strangler vine from around my trunk and saying to this fig, the strangler fig, I was like, okay, you can go down to my roots. That's fine. You can be in my roots, but I don't want you in my trunk. It's my turn to grow now. So that's like a kind of a hokey visual, but I I can't really even explain how powerful that was and just helping me feel Like I could, um, you know, detach more from him and feel better about where I was going alone in my future.
0: Let me say, I don't think that's a hokey visual at all. I think that's really powerful. I mean, the the, the symbolic nature, just the visual component of that is, I mean, something you would, it it almost seems mythological in a way, really beautiful. It does,
1: and I think what it really points to is the power of these stories that we tell ourselves, And we know that for healing, this kind of self-narrative is critical. You know, Mm. how do we frame this experience? How do we frame our being able to move on from it? And for me, it was like, I want to grow. I'm ready to grow. I want to grow. There are good things awaiting me. You know, there's a sunshine out there. You know, let's make it happen.
0: Yeah, I'd love to just talk about that a bit more because it seems that this would be a key component to heartbreak or the stories we tell ourselves out of this. You know, one is that... I, I am a victim, I can't do anything, I'm stuck. And in some cases, people maybe really were in horrible situations, but but maybe it's the reframe that can be so powerful to resiliency, like you said.
1: That's right, and I think often with heartbreak, with romantic rejection, one of the key stories we tell ourselves is we are unlovable.
3: Mm.
1: You know, the, our life partner rejected us, he doesn't love us anymore, therefore we are unlovable. And that's a really debilitating Um, you know, tragic emotion that I think many, many people actually continue to carry on with them after romantic heartbreak. And it's probably partly why some people really don't recover from heartbreak for many, many years, even if at all. So it becomes very wrapped up in self-esteem and your sense of self-worth, maybe stories that you've kind of been telling yourself, you know, for various reasons, you know, maybe even since childhood. And so reframing becomes absolutely critical. And I think when we talk about trauma, we often don't talk enough about what can happen after trauma, which is post-traumatic growth or post-adversity growth. We tend to frame trauma in this language of victimhood. Something happened to me. And we sort of forget the other piece of it, which is that actually it's this kind of pain that can lead to absolutely powerful transformations in how we are able to show up better in our lives moving forward, how we can actually access our emotions, how we can feel you know more powerful human, deep authentic connections to other people. Um, these are the stories I think we need to learn how to embrace better
0: so true. I mean, I think we, trauma is framed more as something you got to just learn to live with maybe, or more, maybe you just make peace with it, but not necessarily as a place from which you grow from, or which you can expand from, which I think is a very kind of potent way to think about this.
1: And I can tell you, it's a, it's a, it's one of the most transformative springboards, right? For, for people actually getting to different, more powerful, um, empowered and loving place in their lives.
0: So where do you feel you're at now? I mean, physically, do you feel that you've resolved the symptoms emotionally? Where are you?
1: Yeah, I do largely. Uh, and, and the research shows that, and, and, and I think this is sort of shocking in some ways that our bodies take on average about four years to recover from a divorce. Uh, I'm now about five years out. um, And I I would say after about two or three years, I really started to feel kind of like a shinier, normal, even better version of myself. I think I sped up the process maybe a little bit, you know, through writing this book and learning what I learned. Um, I've gained the weight back, you know, I'm sleeping well, um, I feel calmer. (laughs) I do feel, um, like my heart is more open and I'm more open to joy now than I was before.
0: Do you feel optimistic about the future of relationships or ones you may enter into?
1: Boy, you know, that's a big question because in general, I feel like there's so little to feel optimistic about sort of in, in our, in our sort of world in general. Um, but I do feel optimistic about my own heart and my own relationships. And that's actually sort of common, even though people despair about the world, they tend to think that they are doing okay. And I think that's great cause for optimism.
0: Yeah. Was there anything else in this process that, that we haven't talked about or that you found was helpful or you think we missed before we before we close out?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I learned that I really love to talk about uh, in terms of our gene expression and what makes our immune system stronger, um, you know, it's not just connecting with other people, although we know that that's sort of a logical, you know, antidote to loneliness. But it turns out one one of the great antidotes to heartbreak and to loneliness is actually finding a sense of purpose. It's the people who have purpose in their lives who know sort of the why of you know, what they do and sort of, you know, what what meanings they, they derive from their, their lives. These are the people who actually have the strongest immune systems uh, and who seem to recover really well from heartbreak.
0: Interesting. It makes sense. I mean, having a reason to get up, uh, having something to believe in. And I think just anecdotally, when you meet these people, they tend to be the most attractive, too, in many ways, aren't they?
1: Mm. yeah and it turns out that they live the longest <laughs> so go find, go find your meaning go find your purpose that's a really worthy quest yeah. and often you know of course it, it doesn't involve just yourself right and your own recovery it involves taking the lessons that you've learned from this experience uh, and looking outward to help other people and to help your community
0: I've been speaking with Florence Williams author of Heartbreak a personal and scientific journey thanks so much for the time
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Once again, that was Florence Williams, science writer and also the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Still to come, we'll hear from a love scientist about how to control our feelings. Can we learn to fall out of love? And later, is coupledom overrated and oversold? We'll continue our conversation after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Florence Williams, science writer and author of Heartbreak: A Personal and Scientific Journey, about the reasons that rejection and heartbreak are so painful and can cause lasting damage. So, what if there was a cure for the broken-hearted? Sandra Langislag, Associate Professor of Psychological Sciences at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, studies the effects of breakups on the brain. Her research focuses on whether by thinking either positively or negatively about someone we love, we can change our feelings towards that person. Sandra Langislag, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Can you talk to us a little bit about your research and what it is that you're fascinated by and what you study?
2: Yeah, so um, I study uh, the interaction between emotions and cognition. Emotions in general, but romantic love in particular. And so, for example, I study how we think differently uh, when we are in love. So how love affects memory and attention, for example. Um, I also study how the way we think uh, changes how in love we are. So can we change how in love we are? Can we make ourselves more or less in love? Um, uh, Depending on what we think
0: yeah yeah how how do you understand what being in love is at this point in your research it's such a big poetic philosophical question but what what do you what do you make sense of how, how do you make sense of it
2: well that's a great question and also a really difficult question there is no agreed upon definition scientific definition of romantic love um, in my research i use a framework um, that is designed by helen fisher who's an anthropologist And she basically says that in humans we have three different love systems, um, one being sexual desire or lust, the second one being infatuation or passionate love, which is, you know, usually that early stage of love when people have butterflies in their stomach and they're nervous. Um, And then we have um, attachment or companionate love, which is a much calmer calmer form of love that sort of develops over time. Mm. Um, and so this is not to say that these are the only three types of love that humans can feel But I really like this framework and so that's what I use in my in my research.
0: Sure Yeah. So one thing you look at is whether or not we can Amplify or maybe decrease feelings of love or or also how that could be used to treat heartbreak or loss or grief So tell us about that research. I mean are are we at all in control over how we feel in terms of love towards another person?
2: Yeah So I started this line of research um, several years ago, and it was actually sort of motivated or inspired by the research that, there's a lot of research on emotion regulation. So we know very well that people can regulate their emotions so they can make themselves more or less happy, more or less sad, more or less angry, uh, and so on. And then I was thinking, well, could we do the same thing with love feelings, right? Um, So I first started off studying how people feel what people think about love regulation so do people think they can do it um how do they do it if they try to do it um and it turned out that people on average think that love regulation is not very possible not very feasible and um, they also thought for example that other people could do it but they couldn't so i was like sure other people can can regulate how in love they are but i can't um and, and, so, and, and, and some people even said, you shouldn't regulate love feelings. Um, you know, they're there or they're not, and you should not try to tweak them. Um, but then I had those participants uh, come in the lab and I, I, I had them do a love regulation task. And so I told them, or I asked them, um, try to increase your love feelings by thinking about positive aspect of your beloved or their relationship or positive future scenarios. Um, and that did increase love feelings uh, only a little bit, right? Not like it's not a huge effect, um, but people could regulate their love feelings. And then I also asked them to think um, about negative things about their beloved or the relationship or the future, and that decreased love feelings. And so even though people thought it wasn't really possible, people can do it in the lab, um, mm-hmm. change how in love they are
0: this can be applied, I think, in interesting ways if we stay with this question of heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we could apply this to, you know, you're trying to get over someone or out of love, and if we change the way we think about them, it may change the way we feel about them?
2: Yes. Well, so (laughs) that was one of the goals with that initial study, right, because my my thought was if I can make people feel less in love with their ex-partner, they're going to feel better. Yes. Um, and I showed that they could be less in love with their ex-partner, but it made them feel worse. I was like, oh, well, that that wasn't <laughs> what I had intended. Um, I was like, well, maybe that was a fluke. So then I did a, another study specifically about heartbreak. So I recruited people that were upset about a, 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 about a breakup. And I had them do three different strategies that I thought could be helpful. So I, again, had them neg- think negatively about their beloved. Um, I also had them um, think about other things. So I had them distract themselves by thinking about things that had nothing to do with their beloved such as uh, what's your favorite food or what would you do if you won the lottery. And then I had them do a third strategy and that was um, accepting love feelings for an ex-partner without um, judgment. So that is a um, sort of a mindfulness approach. So it's okay to be in love you are no longer with. Mm. And we know from the emotional regulation literature that these are effective strategies. Um, And what I found was that that first strategy, so thinking negatively about your beloved, again, uh, decreased people's love feelings for their ex partner So That was a replication of the previous study. And I also again found that it made them feel worse. Um, So then I knew it was not a fluke. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I also found that distracting yourself does not change how in love you are, but it does make you feel better. Mm. And then the mindfulness approach had no effect on how in love people were or how good or bad they felt. So if you think about applying this to daily life, um, we also know that distraction is, is fine to do for short period, periods of time, but it is kind of avoidance. And so you are avoiding a problem, right? Um, so it's probably not good to do that sort of all the time. Eventually you're gonna have to face the issue that's going on. Um, but you know, I was thinking maybe people can do the negative, negative thinking about their beloved to be less in love, But now they feel more unpleasant so now they can go distract themselves and then feel a little better
0: it's like a two-pronged approach it's really kind of interesting as i sit with this i think it's it's kind of there's something unusual about this or i I, maybe i don't know the right words for this but the idea of conjuring up kind of negative feelings towards an ex-partner feels tricky to me or, or oddly controversial, or I don't know, you know, we live with this idea that we should, you know, still be able to love someone and move on from them or still think kindly or fondly of them, but that really may not help. So I, I don't know, how does this stuff sit with you, that idea of the (laughs) negative projections? Yeah,
2: no, well, that's a great question. Well, I have two, two, two answers to that. Um, one is that, uh, in these years that I've been working on this, two people independently, one is my friend who did, who worked with uh, cancer patients and their family, and another one was a reviewer of one of my um, grant proposals, I think. Um, they independently from each other said, oh, this down regulation could be very helpful after a partner passed away. And I was like, ooh, you know, that sounds weird to me, <laughs> because yeah. normally you, you only think good things about people that have passed away, right? But, but you're right, maybe. if if someone passed away and we can more realistically look at them, maybe that can help us cope with them passing. Um, So, but that sort of, then my feelings sort of mirror your feelings as in, do you really want to think negatively about someone who passed away or or an ex partner? Um, The other thought that I have is that the things I asked participants to think about were sort of um, mundane things. So what is a, that habit of your ex-partner that annoys you, who's their annoying friend, um, what is this awful item of clothing, piece of clothing that they have that you dislike, um, when were they not kind to you, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think those thoughts can be very helpful. Now, what I did not have my participants do and what I think would not be helpful, although I, don't, I haven't tested this yet, is like what I call um, ex-bashing. So mm-hmm. if you really think about, you know, um, uh, they're such a terrible person, right? That's a very generic, also very strong um, statement, and so I feel like if you're if you go that route, that may not be helpful because then also you know that if your ex partner was such a terrible person, why were you with them to begin with, right? Was that what does that say about you? Um, so I'm wondering if the types of negative things that you are thinking about your ex partner should be relatively mild but accurate, right? What's that food that they liked that you discussed? Um, type questions does that make sense
0: it makes a lot of sense what about the idea that that heartbreak and loss and sadness is all just part of the human condition and that we don't need to try and get rid of it and that it's important that we have these parts of ourselves i mean that are the source of great art and story and you know so many parts of the culture and world we live in
2: yeah that's a great comment and you're not the first to say that um one reviewer, one of my articles said, you know, heartbreak is natural. So why, what are we really trying to do here? Why can we not just let it run its course? Um, I think that's true. I think heartbreak is very natural and normal. Um, but like I said, you know, it is an important risk factor for depression. So it can become sort of abnormal. It can turn into a mental disorder, which of course is not good. Um, and then, you know, if you think about other things such as, you know, cancer, for example, is also normal. <laughs> Um, but we're trying to cure that, right? Um, so even mm-hmm. if something is natural, naturally occurring, um, I don't think that necessarily means we we shouldn't try to do something about it. Um, also, you know, the strategies that I'm testing, um, they're not an on-off button. So you know, it's not like people think this for five minutes and then all their love feelings are gone, right? So this is it, it decreases love feelings a little bit, and so you probably have to do this. Um, over and over again, you know, once a day, maybe several times a day for, you know, days or weeks um, to have a more sort of sustained effect. And so it's not like a magic wand um, that lets you get rid of heartbreak, for example.
0: I've been speaking with Sandra Langeslag, Associate Professor of Psychology at University of Missouri-St. Louis. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you lastly for many the pain of a breakup comes the fear and anxiety of being alone loneliness despite being a risk factor for health has become more and more common millennials are marrying later men and women have different expectations than a generation ago which all impact the decline in coupledom and the increase in the single life so what does singlehood look like in 2022 and is traditional coupledom the only solution and why is being in a relationship so connected to status and respect in society? Joining me now to talk about the challenge of being alone and single is Ame Lutkin, writer, performer, and author of The Lonely Hunter, How Our Search for Love is Broken, a memoir. Amay Lutkin, welcome to Life Examined.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Set this up for us. Uh, where were you in your life when you began to think about some of these big questions of love and, and solitude, heartbreak, uh, being alone or coupled in the world? What, what was going on for you at that period?
3: At that time I was about 32 or 33 and it had been many years since I'd been in a relationship and I think maybe six years and in that time I probably had sex one time Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was starting to feel like love in a relationship was this very elusive thing but I was also at an age where everyone around me was sort of coupling up, getting married, having children. So it becomes to feel more alienating as you're aging in your 30s as a woman for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time I was a blogger for Jezebel and I ended up writing an essay about this dinner party I had, uh, and the dinner party was all couples, and they were also all really good friends. So I felt super comfortable with them. You know, I felt like I could be very honest and truthful about myself, and they asked me, what's going on with your love life? You know, and instead of just sort of saying, oh, you know, it's tough out there, <laughs> mm-hmm. I said very honestly, you know, I don't know that I'm ever going to date anyone again. And the response to that was very intense. They were almost angry with me, you know, like annoyed by this idea that love isn't inevitable, that it's not a destiny that everyone is owed. Uh, And they kind of like, it, it felt like there was this interrogation happening. They were like, are you going on dates? Are you using dating apps? Are you putting yourself out there? Everybody finds love eventually, you know? And I felt very silenced. I felt like there wasn't any curiosity about my situation, only judgment. Yeah. So when I shared this essay about this experience, about this dinner party, I had a really huge response and a lot of people wrote me emails. A lot of people tweeted at me kind of saying, this is my experience too. I've also gone for years without being in a relationship and I feel so isolated and I always thought it was just me. After like that response from the wider public, I kind of realized that this is a bigger problem than just like our own individualistic issues with dating or falling in love or being in a relationship.
0: Yeah, can, can you launch into that? I mean, w- what, what did you feel was happening beyond just yourself and was part of you know, the culture at large?
3: To be honest, at first I didn't know if it was just my problem. I mean, you <laughs> haven't dated anyone in six years. Uh, it definitely feels like you're the problem, right? I mean, it, it felt like nobody wanted to be with me, no one wanted to date me. And I you know, was getting this response from people who had a similar feeling, a similar situation, but I also got a response from a lot of critical people who were like, oh, you need to lose weight, uh, you need to be have a better attitude, uh, you need to go out there and go on all these dating apps. And a part of me was like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe this is just a personal issue. So I started to go on all these dates, and I, I made a pact with myself that I would go on dates twice a week, no matter what, for the entire summer. Yeah. And I went on dozens, hundreds of dates. <laughs> Sometimes I would go on more than two a week. Uh, and kind of this attempt to figure out if this is like an individualistic problem or a wider issue of isolation in our world, in our society. And I came to a lot of conclusions while writing the book and researching the book and just about the ways that we are inevitably isolated by social systems that are in place. And also that couples themselves are very lonely. You know, this isn't just like single people are lonely and sad and they need to find a partner. Is that we're only offered couplehood as the ultimate solution to loneliness, and it's not enough.
0: That's to me, I think, a really important point, and I'd love it if you could expand on that. Even at that dinner party, I think there were these underlying assumptions that the, as you say, the only way to be in the world is to be in a relationship. And if if you're not in one, then something is wrong with you. Where where do you think that idea comes from? I mean, is it just something that's just been passed down for hundreds or thousands of years?
3: Well, it's funny because I think our idea of, of love and marriage is actually a relatively new one. Um, it used to be that marriage was seen much more pragmatically as sort of an economic partnership or the unification of two families. it's not that love didn't exist within these relationships but they weren't the primary and only relationship in your life like you were just as likely to be super connected to your family that you came from your brothers and sisters um, your cousins and also like your community around you so we're discouraged from having those relationships we're kind of like discouraged from relying on our friendships it's expected that when you get married you leave your other friends behind you move on and you invest deeply into your little unit your little family and i think that's a relatively new progression in relationships there's a book by stephanie kunst it's called marriage a history how love conquered marriage and she sort of talks about how as laws loosened and it became possible to leave a marriage more women were doing so because like you know economically they had to be married to survive and legally it was very difficult to leave that marriage so as that became easier to do there's more pressure put on love and on validation through marriage because it had to become something you chose to make yourself feel worthy But I think the economic issue is still there. A lot of people end up getting married or becoming a couple for pragmatic reasons, still like health care, um, taxes, citizenship. Like there's a lot of ways we're coerced into
0: marriage. Yeah. How do you deal with the psychological pressure to, to be in a relationship, to couple up? What, what do you do with that? I
3: think now after writing this book and going through this experience, I deal with it by being really confrontational and clear and, you know, asking people, interrogating why they think I need to be in a relationship if they see me as more valuable if I'm in a relationship and why. And if I'm never in a relationship, do I still, like, read as a success to them? Do I still have something to offer the society if I never have children? I think a lot of us have these ideas inside of us about what it means to never be a part of a family in that way, and they're really connected to shame. And talking about it I think releases shame a lot of the time because as I said, once this essay came out, I heard from so many people in the same situation. So that shame is keeping us from seeing each other and realizing they were actually very normal and being single for a long time is very normal. Uh,
0: one of the things you also looked at was um, the wellness industrial complex and what, what that industry tells us we, we should do or expect or how we should navigate. What were some of the things you, you learned from going down that rabbit hole?
3: Well, I think one of the main points is that uh, as I was working on myself, as they say, <laughs> I, uh, I did a lot of interior work, but I also did stuff like lose weight. I changed my wardrobe. I got a haircut and I got a really positive response from people and it began to make me feel good. And for a while I was like, oh, you're feeling good just because you know, you're exercising and your pants fit a little bit better whatever and of course you know exercise and good food will improve your mood a lot of the time but what i was really responding to is everyone treating me really well like people will just treat you differently if you look more conventionally attractive that's just the truth and i began to wonder if i were in a relationship probably people would treat me better right like that i would be conforming to this expectation so would i feel better because i was in love or with somebody i liked and in a relationship or because i was being given more respect and dignity as a couple person
0: how did you end up reacting to that or feeling?
3: You know, I think it's taken time and some distance from doing that to have the awareness. I mean, I write about it in the book, but at the time I was just like, yeah, I'm doing all the right stuff and I'm going to be rewarded because I think that's how we think about love and relationships as a reward. And so people who are in relationships sort of feel like, Oh, I've done all the right stuff. I took all the right steps. And I eventually like reached my final destination, my happily ever after. And so while I was doing that, I felt like, oh, I'm taking all the steps everyone says I have to take to get to my happily ever after. I'm doing the right thing. I also think just like the way capitalism works, it tends to take genuinely good, wholesome ideas and turn them into things that can be sold back to you. So like the idea of like loving yourself uh, becomes improving how you look or, you know, spending money on things like that are little treats. And The underlying message is that if you love yourself, you'll transform and that transformation will draw someone to you to love you. So it becomes again about this external validation instead of like an internal peace with yourself.
0: I've been speaking with Ame Lutkin, author of The Lonely Hunter. Thank you so much for the time, Amey. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And just a reminder the Life Examined will broadcast at this temporary time of 10 a.m. through May 14th, and we'll make sure to keep you updated on any other program changes. Once again, we invite you to join our Facebook group and continue the conversation and share your thoughts on what you heard today on the science behind heartbreak. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week. Take care.